We find ourselves in 1 Peter 3. We've had a nice stretch of time where we haven't had a chance to pick back up in 1 Peter. So some of you might feel like you're jumping right in, but that's okay. You can jump right in. Um, This has been a beautiful letter, a wonderful letter, an encouraging letter. As I said many times before as we've read through it, 1 Peter was written to a group of people, some of the first people that were on the fringes of the empire that began to feel the persecution before everyone else did. Uh, Of course, the church in Jerusalem had felt persecution from their Jewish brethren and all of that, but this was some of the first hints of the persecution that would come from the Roman Empire. When Paul walked throughout um, his missionary journeys, the beginning of his missionary journeys, he had the most problems with his own people. They were the ones that were angry. Then he had problems with the idolatrous Greeks. He had problems with the pagans. But then the tides turned and it, it came to a point where the church was not just being persecuted by people that disagreed with them religiously. Uh, they began to be persecuted by, by the government itself, by, by the empire. And the empire wielded a, a mighty sword and, and, and gave the citizens the feeling that they were doing right by persecuting the church. We don't know whether this letter was written right before the time of Nero going wacko or right in the middle of it, but we know that Peter died during that period. Uh, Nero looked, I mean, just, just as a side note, he looked like he might be a half-decent king. In fact, Seneca was his tutor, and some of you might know Seneca was one of the leading Stoic philosophers. He wasn't a believer, but he wasn't a bad guy. And he was trying to, to turn Nero into a nice young philosopher king, a wise young guy, but Nero had a mother who was just fruitcake crazy. And um, some of that crazy rubbed off, and it must have been all that inbreeding, I don't know, but there was some real issues with him. And he, like so many other um, great kings and emperors, began to believe he himself was divine, uh, began to be paranoid that anybody would come against him. And there was a point where Rome caught fire and started in the slums. And my personal theory is somebody probably just left a fire going too long or put threw ashes out and it was a hot, dry summer. And so the slums were so packed together that, that they burst into flames pretty quick, but it spread throughout a bunch of Rome. And initially, the church, or not the church in Rome, the citizens of Rome blamed Nero for it. Nero was um, an aspiring artist. He wasn't good at it. He wasn't a good singer. He wasn't a good fiddler, but he he thought he would, and he paid enough people to, uh, or threatened them with death that they'd show up and say, boy, that was great. And uh, the stories were that he played a song on his fiddle. Now, he probably figured, if I play a song on my violin while Rome is burning, how touching, how poetic, but everybody else said, look, Rome was burning and you fiddled. You know, you're, you're playing around and, and Rome is burning. So uh, Romans who were great at graffiti, they had written all over the walls that Nero did this. He was being accused of it. And blame had to be deflected. So Nero gets out with his advisors or whoever, and he looks at a map and he says, well, where did the fire hit the most? Here's where it hit the most. Well, who didn't get hit by this great fire? The Jewish sector didn't get hit by the great fire. Most of the Jews were kept separate. Most of the Jews, the fire didn't reach their neighborhoods. But they were too large of a group to blame. 
A smaller group in that little section was the Christians. Now, the Christians were spread throughout the city, but because Christianity sprung out of Judaism, a lot of them that were in that section, they weren't touched by the fire. Blame was put on them. The Christians did this. And so everybody that's already a little bit suspicious of these weird Christians now now feels like they have their justification. And I'll tell you, it doesn't matter how loving, how good, how peaceful you are, Someone will find a reason to call you a hater. Someone will call you a reason to, to call you a bigot. They'll find a reason to hate you. They'll find a reason to want to hate you. It's what they did for Jesus. Jesus said the time is coming where people will kill you and think they're doing a service to God. During this time, there were people that thought they were doing the right thing by executing Christians, by persecuting Christians. And Peter doesn't write a letter of woe is you. What a sad thing you're going through. Peter writes a letter of encouragement. He says this, guys. Don't you worry. There's nothing you're going through that our Lord didn't go through and conquer for you. And everything that you're facing right now, whether it be the struggle, whether it be enduring through this time of hardship, or whether it be struggling with your own, your own issues in your own life that you're trying to overcome, Jesus overcame all of that for you. And so just what you need to do is follow in his footsteps. He has paved a trail. He's cut a swath through the bush. You follow Jesus. Let him be your example and you do what he did. And trust me, the reason he can say that, now, you know, we could not possibly follow Jesus. There'd be no way we could really follow Jesus if he was just a great man. Or even if he was the son of God and didn't die for us. Because he was so perfect that which one of us could ever say I could follow Jesus' example and really pull it off? But the reason we can say that, the reason the Bible says you can follow Christ's example is because Jesus didn't just say, do what I do. He filled you with himself. He put to death the old you and raised to life. By his cross, your sinful self was, was put to death. And by his resurrection, you were raised a new person. And so now, he, when I say following Jesus' example, that's not just philosophy. That's not just good teaching. That's because you've been made alive again. His spirit is living in you. Can you imagine if somebody said, hey, I need you to follow me. I need you to follow me downtown. Okay. I want you to walk. Okay. So we're walking downtown. Well, you're walking downtown. I'm taking a motorcycle. Well, are you going to drive slow on the motorcycle? No, I'm going to go like 50, 60 kilometers per hour. But you follow me. Follow me as I go downtown. That's not fair, is it? It wouldn't be fair if that person's on a motorbike and you're walking. But Jesus has equipped you to walk in the same way he walked. Everything he did, he did because the Father told him. And he did through the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank God, you know what he left you? He gave you a relationship with the Father and he left you the Holy Spirit. So Jesus can now say, follow me and you can follow Jesus. So let's get into 1 Peter 3 here and and pick up where we left off. I don't know if you remember where we left off, but we left off talking about when, when you're asked to give an account for the hope that lies in you, how do you give an account? And, uh, while we certainly apply this to a coworker asking you why you're so joyful or uh, someone on the street saying, you know, what's different about you? We also have to understand that the context of the time was also that they would be put on trial for the very belief. And, and uh, the questions that would be asked, he says, don't worry, you can answer these questions because uh, you have a hope that's, that's alive. 
And you can answer those questions with hope. But here's what he says as we get down um, to verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I love that verse. Christ died for sins once for all. Now that for all certainly can mean for all time, but I believe it means also for all people. He did it once, and he did it for all. And then it says this, and this is beautiful, that he might bring us to God. Don't you love? I mean, because we know if you've read the Bible, you understand. Even if you've, even, even somebody with a, with a very basic understanding of God knows this, that our own sin kept us from God, that there was distance. And that distance has been there for centuries. And that Jesus didn't just tell us, go to God, find God, draw near to God. Jesus brought us to God. He bridged that gap. So it says that he died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. I don't know, I don't know how, how nice you are and how good of a tea party you throw, but we were all unjust. We're all deserving of death, and thank God he loved us enough. He didn't, he didn't want to see us go that way. So the just died for the unjust. Is that fair? It's not fair. <laughs> it's just, but it's not fair. It's not fair that the just die for the unjust. That's a bad system, isn't it? That would be a bad system, but this is God, and he gets to do things like that. And Jesus laid down his life for you, that you, the unrighteous, you, the unjust, you, the sinful, could be made righteous by the blood of Jesus. That's good news. Then he goes on and says this, that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. So through his death, there was also resurrection. He goes on and he says this, in which he also went and he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. There's a lot of different theories about what this verse means. And people from Augustine to Luther have admitted, I don't know exactly what this means. Great men and women of God with great minds have said, this, I think this means this, but it could also mean this. Who are those spirits in prison? Well, first thing you have to understand, your Bible might say he went and preached. And that's not a bad translation because the Greek word there, I believe, is a derivative of caruso, to preach. But to us, we only use the preach in a, in a Christian church context. So when I say preaching, you think of somebody standing up there telling you good news and giving you an altar call after. But the word to preach really means to proclaim. So it, it, we have, a, we have a, an idea of what preaching looks like. But this is proclaiming. So, it, it, you know, if the emperor made a new law across the empire, somebody's got to go to all those cities and tell them there's a new law. When an emperor died and there was going to be a new ruler come in, somebody had to go to each place and tell them there's a new emperor. Here's the new, there's going to be a new way, there's a new law, there's a new rule. That would be proclaiming to these people. When you'd, when you'd conquer kingdoms, you had to go and tell them and proclaim to them, this is now conquered, you're new, now under new rule, you're now under a new king, things are going to be different. So when Jesus preached, it doesn't mean that he got up behind a pulpit, got out his notebook, and preached a five-point sermon on how to live a better life. 
It means that he proclaimed that victory had been won. He proclaimed that principalities and powers and rulers had been put down under his feet. He proclaimed victory. He proclaimed peace. He proclaimed that the battle was over. Who are those spirits? Some say they were the saints that were made righteous. Those that died before Jesus died on the cross. You can make a better case because of the fact that he says spirits that Jesus proclaimed this to the spirit world. He proclaimed this to to angels and demons, but specifically to demons here. He proclaimed it to them. Guys, you're finished. He made proclamation. It's over. You lost. That's good news, isn't it? Well, then he switches over to, he ties that to Noah. And he's about to talk about baptism. And baptism in Noah is a funny, is a funny re- relation. Because when you first think about it, the only thing they have in common is water. <laughs> and guys, if I remember the story correctly, the good guys didn't get dunked in the water. <laughs> so maybe baptism, what's going on here? Well, he talks about how the water brought death, but it also saved eight people. When we tell the story of Noah's Ark to the kids, the kids love Noah's Ark. Baby nurseries are decorated with Noah's Ark because we love animals. Very few of those nurseries, if any, have floating corpses next to the animals. That's one of the most gruesome stories in the Bible. The Lord told Noah to build him an ark. There's not a verse about all the people that are banging on the door as they're about to die. That's a good thing, too. I don't want my kid talking about that this early. But when we first think of the, of the flood, it's a, it's a terrible thing. It's a harsh thing. I'm sure it wasn't easy in the eyes of God to see his creation die. But the Bible tells us it had gotten so wicked that the earth was about, the people were about to destroy themselves. Not only that, but there were eight people left on the planet, particularly because one guy was righteous. He kept his kids in line. Eight people left that were righteous. Now, I believe this because he's about to tell us this. Had it not been for the flood, they would have died. And righteousness would have been, de- would have been dead with them. These, the, the wickedness had grown so intense. Now, we probably don't know because Genesis doesn't go into great detail about it. But you could pluck from the various sources in the scripture that mention it. It got to a wicked place. The earth was a dangerous, wicked place. And God, you might not think it's merciful, but God out of his mercy saved eight people's lives. See, all of those people would have died. But eight people were saved by the flood. So the same flood that killed all those people saved eight people. So whether it's a good thing or a bad thing depends on your perspective, doesn't it? If you're eight people in a boat getting away from self-destruction, then the flood was good. If you're about to die, it's not so good. So how does this relate to baptism? Well, you've got to think about what baptism symbolizes. Not only what it symbolizes, but, but the spiritual part of baptism. What, what's happening when we're being baptized? What's happened when we're baptized into Christ? What happened when we're baptized into water? Something happened, right? Now, I, I, we're going to tell you, most of you, what, how, what does the scripture say? We're saved by faith, right? We're saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God. It says, if you believe with your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved, right? It's not an act. That, it's, not, it's, not, it's not the water that saves you. It's, you. You got saved. But the water is part of all of this. 
And I know sometimes it gets tricky, but we understand that baptism is part of a Christian life. If somebody gave their heart to the Lord and didn't have time to get baptized, did they go to heaven? Absolutely, I believe they did. But I believe that baptism saves us in a different way. Because we hear saved, once again, the word saved, we think of one thing, saved from hell. But don't you know that Jesus came to save you from more than just hell? Your own sins. I mean, come on, guys. If Jesus just saved you from hell and you still lived in the same muck and poison and mire that you were living in before, would you call that salvation? I mean, yes, you'd be saved from hell, but you'd still be in the the mess you were in to start with. Jesus came to deliver you not just from the penalty of your sin, but from the slavery of sin and from the fear of it. So Jesus broke the chains off us. He didn't just say, when you die and you're old one day and you give your last breath, then things will be better. Then you'll be free from sin. He said, right now you can be free from sin. And that baptism is an integral part of it because what it's showing is somebody going down and you're, you're showing as you go into the water that you're, you're identifying with the death of Christ and your own death. And as you come up, we identify with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We come up and we remember. And, and really, uh, scripturally and historically, baptism was a declaration. It was a proclamation that you were not in this halfway. There's a lot of people who believe and maybe say, I believe what you believe, but I'm just not ready to go as far as you're going. You might have a lot of people that say, I believe that, but I'm not going to pray. Not yet, not yet. Well, if you really believed it, why wouldn't you give your heart to Jesus right now? That's like somebody saying, you know, I, I, I believe that this water I'm drinking is contaminated. And I'm going to stop drinking it when it's almost empty. I'm really thirsty right now. But that's going to kill you. Yeah, I believe you. Uh, I'm just not done drinking it yet. We would, we would say that person is crazy. But that's kind of what it's like. When you, get, you got baptized in water... You declared to the world, to the church, to everybody. You said, I've decided to follow Jesus. And watch me, I'm going all the way under. And when I come up, I'm coming all the way up. There's not a part of me that's separate from this. I'm not, I'm not leaving a part of me out. I'm going all the way with Jesus. Now he says this, corresponding to that. Eight, eight people were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves us saves you. It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So once again, look, it's not the water that gives you a good conscience. It's not the water that cleanses your flesh. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, does the water play a part in it? Absolutely. You know, there's a reason that Jesus doesn't just tell us to mime it. Pretend you're going under the water and come out. This is sometimes a little bit difficult for us to understand, but, but God created the natural world and the spirit world, and they, they dwell together. They're not separate. There was a heresy in, in, in the early church age that was called Gnosticism, and one of the things they believed was that there was the spirit and there was the, the fleshly stuff, and they never mixed. And so if you sinned in the flesh, no big deal. <laughs> that was your flesh that sinned, but your spirit's separate. They didn't even believe Jesus physically died on the cross. A body died, but his spirit was somewhere. You know, this, is, this was the thing that was going on. This was the heresies that was being preached. And so here now, 
We still do that sometimes. We, we separate the physical. We say, well, this is, what's, this is what I see, but this is what's really happening. And I understand that. But you got to know, God works in the physical world too. He created. He's all through it. So when Nathan, or sorry, Samuel comes along and says, David, you're going to be king. And starts dumping olive oil on his head and anointing him to be king. Is there any, did he go and get magic olives from the top of a mountain? And these special magic olives were blessed by a guru and, and then and he anoints David with, no, it's just regular old olive oil. It's the same stuff they were dipping bread in. But somehow when the Holy Spirit joins it, there's power in that oil. There's nothing special about oil. Oil is just oil. If, you, if you're changing oil in your car and you make a mistake and it spills all over you, you're not going to have a Holy Ghost moment at that moment, you know? I mean, I'm not saying you couldn't. There's nothing magical about oil. So why in the world, in the scripture, do they anoint people with oil? Why not just say, let the Spirit be on you or something? Well, I mean, of course, it's, it's something we can see, right? It's something we can touch. But I also believe that God is in the physical. His spiritual and physical aren't separate. They're together. And so somehow, when that took place, yeah, I believe it was, it was so that they could see something. But I also believe there was power in it. You got to explain to me how Paul wipes his sweat on handkerchiefs. Somebody takes it away and lays it on a demon-possessed person. And the evil spirits go out. Somehow... Heaven and earth have mixed. Somehow, spirit and natural have mixed. So do I get into the water in that baptismal tank and say, has this water been thoroughly blessed? No. Because it's not the water itself that saves you. It's Jesus. It's his death and his resurrection. But there's something. You guys have experienced it. When you got baptized, how did you feel? Something changed. Something happened. When you got saved, something happened. And this baptism saves us, and here's why. Because it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. This is you appealing to God and saying, I'm not going to live the life I used to live. I'm not going to be the person I used to live. Because I have now, that person died, and this is a new person that's alive right now. He says this, it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where the power is. Power is not in secret sauce that we dunk in the water before you get in. The power is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The power was in the cross to put to death the sin and in the resurrection to bring you alive again. And it says this, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers have been subjected unto him. So this brings that context Certainly brings it into context when he said he made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Here's what he's saying. Look, those things have been put under his feet. He rules and he reigns. I want to read you something from the book of Hebrews. And, and we want to talk about this good conscience thing. Your conscience was messed up. And I'm sorry to say that, but mine was too. We, not only was it dirty, but I think it was I think over time, every one of our consciences had been seared. The Bible talks about that. Some whose consciences have been seared. What does that mean? It means they resisted the Holy Spirit enough that eventually they kept, I mean, when they first did something that was bad, they knew it was wrong. But the more they did it, the more it didn't feel wrong anymore until the point where they celebrate it. 
If I were to, I mean, if I were to sear you with a branding iron and your skin got seared, after the initial burn healed up and, and you no longer felt the pain of that burning process, you wouldn't feel sensitive in those scar t- that scar tissue anymore, would you? You could touch it and you wouldn't know anybody's touching unless you felt the pressure of it. This is what happens when our conscience has been seared by resisting God. When you do what you know is wrong and the Holy Spirit's saying, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there, and you keep doing it, eventually you won't hear the Holy Spirit. And it's not because he's suddenly okay with it. It's not because he's cool with it now. It's because now you've seared your conscience in that area. I know a lot of people who say, well, I used to have a problem with it, but now I have great peace about it. And they, they act like, oh, that is God's seal of approval on what they're doing. You have great peace because you've told the Holy Spirit to shut up long enough that you no longer can hear him in that area. And don't be deceived. It's like cancer. It spreads. I used to think I can, I can be obedient to God in all these areas, but in this area, I'm hesitant, but that's okay. I, I have it isolated. It never stays isolated. Once you tell your heart, I can disobey the Lord, it will spread. So what do we do? Well, we thank God we've been covered by the blood of Jesus cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That when you came to God, your conscience was so messed up and dirty and filthy and warped that uh, you didn't know right from wrong. You may know some right from wrong, but you didn't know God's way. But what did he do? He took you as dirty as you were and he washed you and he cleansed you and he put to death your sin and he made you alive in Christ and he made you a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, here in Hebrews, he talks about the old covenant, and he talks about the sprinkling of heifer's blood, which once again, when you really think about it, is pretty gruesome. But they would sprinkle this blood over everything because everything was defiled, everything was dirty, and they'd sprinkle it to to cleanse it before they would come into the presence of God. You might say, well, that's just barbaric. Why would they do that? Well, it was to symbolize the same blood of Jesus that would be shed for us, that he gave his life for us. And he goes on in, in Hebrews chapter 6. He talks about the fact that, that, that old, those Old Testament sacrifices could only do so much. They couldn't make you perfect. They could only atone for a while. They could only temporarily do something. See, what Jesus did was not temporary. What Jesus did was, was eternal, what was, was once and for all, as we read. Did I say Hebrews 6? I meant Hebrews 9. It's an up down, upside down 6. So if you have your Bibles upside down, it'll make more sense. If you're reading your Bible upside down, you're either talented or, or really need prayer. Hebrews chapter 9 says this. Verse 6, there's the 6. I knew there was a 6 in there. (laughs) Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year. He's talking about the old tabernacle. Only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, for which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. In other words, they didn't know better, but they still have to be atoned for. You know? They didn't know better. Had I known better, I would have done But they still have to be atoned for. Then he goes on and he says this, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, 
Both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which can't make the worshiper perfect in conscience. See, remember, Hebrews is written to a bunch of Hebrews. You didn't need to be a detective to figure that out, but that's the case. It's written to a bunch of Hebrews who were familiar with the Old Testament customs, who were still doing it. And he's, he's saying this, there's a new way to be with God. There's a new way to draw near to God, and you can't get there the old way. And the new way is being disclosed, and so the old is fading away. Which is why, if you're part of Jews for Jesus today, you don't go out and kill a heifer. Right? If you're part of Jews for Jesus, you, you and Gentiles for Jesus alike, we all come to Jesus and, and ask him because there's a new way to God. There's a new and living way to God. Doesn't mean that God nullified his old covenants, but means that there no longer needs to be sacrifices. Jesus was our sacrifice once and for all. Then he says this, they can't make you perfect in conscience. They can only cover for a bit. They can only make you feel better for a while, but they would never really clean you up. It says it's, since they relate only to food, I'm having fun with the projectionist here. Since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sorry, I said blood of heifer, but it's the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who've been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more? All right, so all of this just cleaned up, just cleansed their flesh. But he says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, if you got lost in this section, I understand there's a lot of terms, there's a lot of phrases that might be confusing. But let's just break it down right now. What is he saying? He's saying the old covenant did something. It made you clean enough to physically go into a building where God's presence is and not fall dead. However, it atoned for the sins of the people, but every year you had to do it again because it was not perfect. But now that Jesus has died, the perfect sinless Lamb of God has died for us. He didn't just come and cover up a little bit of your issues. He didn't come and just make you a little bit more acceptable to God. He made you perfect in conscience. Your conscience has been cleared by the blood of Jesus. Guys, if you're still carrying stuff from your your past, if you're still carrying stuff from your history, you have to, by faith, agree with God that it has been put to death once and for all. The scripture says this very clearly. If somebody dies, they no longer are responsible for their sin. If they've been put to death, if you have the death penalty, they're not going to pick up your body and throw you in prison for for the piece of bread that you stole. If you go to the electric chair, they're not going to say, well, he's not done yet. That was one of his crimes. He's still got to serve 10 years. Let's put the corpse in the prison. All right, that's not going to happen, is it? You guys don't seem convinced that that's not going to happen. In Canada, it's not going to happen. Who knows what those wackos at ISIS are going to do. But in Canada, it wouldn't happen, all right? So here's the deal. You can't die for the same crime twice. You've already died. You died with Jesus. His blood made you clean. And he says, now, Jesus did this, and he did it through the eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit, and he offered himself, and he didn't have a blemish. He was perfect. 
What he did was he cleansed your conscience. How much more will he cleanse your conscience? Not just your flesh, but your spirit. See, that was the issue. And the old covenant, it, it, it fixed their behavior. It made them clean on the outside, but nothing really made them perfect on the inside. But through Jesus Christ, you have been made a new creation. This is why baptism matters. This is why we, the scripture says in the book of Romans, we've been baptized into Christ. The word baptizo in Greek means to completely dunk, to immerse. Nothing's left out. You're dunked. That word is used for dyeing, sometimes for dyeing fabric. When you, I mean, when, when those people in that day and age were, were dyeing fabric, you didn't take a paintbrush and, you know, you know slowly paint it over. You just dunked it in the, in the dye. And you let it soak in until everything was soaked by it. You've been baptized into his death. You've been baptized into his resurrection. You've been baptized into Christ. Now, we have to get a revelation of the fact that we are not people that have merely been touched by God. We have been people that have been completely immersed into his sacrifice, completely immersed into his death. So the old you completely died. And the new you, that that person that God created, that spirit that, that was recreated in him, is perfectly clean. Thank God for it. And he's able to continually cleanse us because how many of you know we didn't get saved and just become perfect people? Our spirits were made perfect, but I'll speak for myself. I have done a lot of imperfect things. And I thank God for the eternal blood of Jesus, which didn't just wash me once. It continues to wash me. Here's the good news. When we were baptized... You know, when you got saved, there was a spiritual baptism that took place. The scripture talks about it. It says you've been baptized into Christ. Why in the world do we do this water thing? It's a symbol, yes. It's a declaration, yes. But it is a part of us as disciples of Jesus Christ experiencing something that is difficult to describe to the world. It's us saying the old guy is truly dead. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you're able to fulfill that promise. It saved us. Because if you thought the only thing you needed to be saved from was hell, you were mistaken. Hell was the worst. (laughs) That's death, right? You were saved from death. But thank God you were saved from your own sin right now. It saves us. And if you're still struggling with stuff, because we all have done that and we're continuing to fight those battles, and you're struggling right now and you're saying, I keep going back to the same junk over and over and over again. Why didn't this work? The price has already been paid for you. By faith, we receive it. You need to believe that Jesus has paid the price, not just for you to get a ticket to heaven but for you to live this life alive to him. Romans says we now must consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know, there's so many Christians that got the dead to sin part down. That's their identity. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't swear, I don't do this, I don't watch porn, I don't, you know. That's their identity is I'm dead to my old self. But that's not enough. I've said it so many times, you're probably tired of me saying it, but if Jesus came to earth and all he did was live a life for 33 years where all he did was just not sin, 
Peter didn't say, you've heard of Jesus of Nazareth, how he went about not sinning. He says, you've heard of Jesus of Nazareth, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. The scripture says that he died, but the life he lived, he lived to God. It says, now you got to consider yourself dead to sin. But there's another half of that, isn't there? But alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm alive now. So the, the baptism doesn't just signify. Listen, if it was all about you being dead to sin, I'd keep you under there for the rest of your life. And the rest of your life would be real short, wouldn't it? You wouldn't last to the end of the service. It's not just about dying. It's about being raised. And guys, there's a resurrection to come, and I'm really pumped for it. I'm really excited about it. I'm excited about the resurrection to come when I get rid of this old body. I was going to say something degrading, but you know, hey, the Lord gave me this body. I'll respect it. Uh, but when I get rid of this, it's going to be a great day. When, I, when we get to be with Jesus, it's going to be a great day. He gives us a new body. But we've been raised already in the spirit. We've already been raised. We've experienced resurrection. There's resurrection to come, but the Bible says you have been raised with Christ. You died, but you're alive. Thank God that resurrection power is real for us. It saves us. It rescues us. That word save means to rescue, to deliver. Guys, once again, thank God he rescued you from hell. But he died to rescue you from your your issues and your problems and your sin right now. If you're still dealing with it, if you're still struggling it, call on the name of the Lord and be delivered. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. He can do this. I was going to say you can do this. Forget you. He can do this. He can do this. This salvation is being walked out. What does the Bible say? Work out this salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work it out. Which means there's a salvation that took place on the inside of me. And I get to work it out into my life and find out that that salvation bleeds into everything. So it saves us. Because it's an appeal to God for a good conscience, a clean conscience. Do you notice in this verse we read in Hebrews, and I'm about to close with this. In this verse we read in Hebrews, it says, He cleansed our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here's the deal. You could not serve God the way we should serve God. With all that stuff on your conscience. You couldn't do it. You couldn't serve God like he designed you to serve God. With all that weight on you. With all that guilt on you. With all that perversion on you. He cleaned you so he could use you. And if you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, I don't feel like I've lived up to that. I don't feel clean. I feel like I still do the same things. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Once again, quit trying to save yourself. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Quit trying to save you and let Jesus save you. His name is the Lord saves. There's there's something to be done about that, isn't there? Do you know Jesus died? The Bible says in 1 John, he died for the whole world. He paid the price for everyone. But not everyone will be saved. Isn't that right? He did his part. You got to do yours. What do you got to do? You got to come to him. You got to call on him. You got to call him Lord. Make him the Lord of your life. Give your life to Jesus. 
in the same way here. I can say Jesus is going to save you. The Lord will help you till, till my face turns blue. But until you're ready to step out and receive that help. Many of you came out of addiction. Or some of you are st- working with people with addiction. I mean, a big chunk of our church came out of addiction. Well, you know what it's like when they say, when somebody says to you, listen, I can offer you help, but until you want to be helped, I can't do anything for you. Right? This is, this, this is something professionals say all the time. I want to help you, but you have to want to be helped, right? You have to want, you have to, I mean, and this is the same thing. God is, is there. He's granted this all to us. He's paid the price. You have to receive it by faith. You have to receive it. You have to say, okay, I, I'll take it. You have, there's diligence involved. There's faith involved. There's endurance. And I'm telling you, I'm, I have every confidence in my Savior. He's, he's the only Savior. And if there were a thousand other Saviors, he'd be the best. He is the only one capable of saving you. And he saved you from hell, thank God. But he's able to save you once and for all from that sin which so easily entangles you. Baptism saves us because we've now appealed to God for a good conscience. That we can live a life for him and to him. I love that in Hebrews. The life he lives He lives to God. Have you ever considered that your life is not just lived for God, but to Him? Your life is a gift to God. Your life is a song for God. Your life is something we present to Him. See, when I live a life that I think is for God, I'm looking here, I'm looking there, I'm looking down, I'm looking at other people, but when I live a life to God, where are my eyes? My eyes are on Him. My life is to you. My life is my offering to you. My life is yours. And Jesus paid the way that you could say that. And it would be acceptable to God. Not like Abel. I mean, not like Cain, whose offering was rejected by God. There's not a person in the planet that comes to God and he rejects them. He says, if you come to me, I will not cast you out. Everyone here and everyone you meet, come to him and you'll be received. We know that, right? By the blood of Jesus. Thank God. I want you to stand up tonight.